Alright, this is a very special episode for us, episode 100. I always said from the infancy stages of this podcast that once we hit 100, we are officially a real podcast. So after this episode concludes with Christian Bush, we will be a real podcast. And I, I thank you all for listening to this thing and making it big and uh, relatively speaking big. And Mike D, good job, my friend. Been been at it since the beginning. Bought all the equipment. Didn't tell the company we were doing it. Mike set it up. Been in two houses. And here we are. Episode 100. Get your hands up! <laughs> we're about to start with Christian in a second, but just want to say uh, thank you so much for listening. We, we try to get on songwriters and producers and artists and have hour-long conversations that you can't hear anywhere else. I think we've been able to do that. And Check out, just scroll through and check out uh, Maren Morris, Chris Stapleton, and Ross Copperman, Shane McAnally. There's so many. Just stories upon stories. We've tried to bring that to you. Even John Oates from Holland Oates. You know, we've had uh, John Mayer. A lot, a lot of ones that aren't in the format, too. So I want to say that on the Nashville Podcast Network, and here we are, episode 100, we also have a network of shows. I'd like to encourage you to check out Good Company with Jake Owen. I'd like to encourage you to check out Geeking Out with Christian Bush, which is not even about music, really. It's just about people geeking out over things. Whiskey Riff Raff, with the guys from Whiskey Riff do a show from Chicago about country music, kind of the fans' perspective. So thank you for letting us do this. Special music for episode 100, although I might keep this. I'm not lie to you. Yeah, I like it. I'm kind of feeling it a little bit. Get your hands up! Here we are, episode 100. Here we are, episode 100. Didn't know it would be so much fun, did ya? Episode 100. All right, uh, I'm going to turn this down, and we're going to start with Christian Bush, but appreciate everybody for listening. And Mike, let's keep this music. Okay. Because I feel like eating something. Eating what? I don't know, a human. <laughs> feels like a zombie movie music. Like a, uh. All right, Christian Bush, episode 100. Here we go. All right, welcome to the biggest episode in the history of our podcast. For oh. two reasons, yeah, for two reasons. One, it's our 100th episode. Oh! Yes. Oh my god! We saved You're in the, triple digits! We were going to do some sort of special for 100. This is honest to God truth. And I said, well, Christian is going to come up in the next few weeks. So we saved episode 100 because I wanted it to be you. Oh my god! And that's why it's, so, it's our... And I've always said... Do a I pod- get a car or something? No. <laughs> <laughs> Does everybody in the room, is it an Oprah thing? No. <laughs> Not so much. But you can have my hat, I guess. <laughs> we can trade hats. <laughs> so it's our, I've always said to myself, you're not a legitimate podcast that has proven that you will stay the test of time until you hit 100 episodes. You can be That's a good awesome. one, but you need to hit 100 so people trust that you're going to be there. And so we have <laughs> over 100 hours of content of artists, producers, songwriters, and this is our 100th. So we're officially, today, yes! we're a real, yes, that's right. We are a real podcast, everyone. Yep. So all that is side, awesome. I'm very happy you're here, Mr. Christian. Well, thank you for having me. Ah, but so much to talk about. It, and I feel like, why don't we start with today? Because Christian has a new podcast that's up now as I well. Do. And we'll get to that, and we're going to get to life. But why don't we just start with today? And Let's okay. talk about Sugarland coming back. Sure. So I had mentioned to you that it was difficult for me to interview you and Jennifer <laughs> because I just knew too much. I knew you guys were coming back together before, and I'm a good secret keeper. 
Yeah, but we'll backstory that. Okay, go ahead. I'll backstory it for you. Is this microphone the right way? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, I remember the moment where uh, my phone blew up because um, people in the that were listeners, and especially people in the industry, knew that you and I knew each other because I, I you invited me to write on your, your your first record, and you had said something on the air about you know what? Why don't we bring Sugarland back together? I was like, it is my and, goal to bring <laughs> Sugarland back together, and th- that was like a week after I had gotten a phone call that said, hey. So, if by chance would this be something you'd be interested in from Jennifer and her, and her people? And I was like, "Huh?" And she said, "Well, look, do you can't tell anybody that I've called you." And the first thing that I thought to myself was, "Oh my god, they think I told Bobby." Did and they, they think you told me? Well, that's what I was worried because I have like five friends on earth and I would consider you one of them, but I'm not sure I would have disclosed that to you, even if we were friends. And you didn't. I did not. Yeah. But I immediately thought that I was, uh uh-oh. So I, I called my people and said, can you call Bobby's people and tell him that he's too close to the truth. (laughs) (laughs) He's flying too close to the sun. Deep throat is too close to Watergate. You know, how random. And because I got a call that day uh-huh. from Tom, who we both work with, and Tom says, "Hey, can you come to the office?" <laughs> I said, "Yeah, sure." Well, you know, I, I rarely get called in to the principal's office. He just didn't want to text anything, or he, he goes, "Hey, I need you to not talk about Sugarland." I said, "What? Do you, I think it's a great idea. What if we got them back together for one show?" Hey, we need you to not talk about Sugarland <laughs> because they're talking about Sugarland, and I was like. Oh, I'm out. I'm out. Check. Nothing. It was completely random and rare, and I just felt in my heart like they should be together again. And I'm, if for everybody listening that thinks maybe there, were, there was nothing up. No, but I love your heart, Bobby Bones. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> because apparently it has the ability to will things into existence. <laughs> so I'd like you to say some other things on the, on the air, like, you know. Still the same, number one record. I feel in my there heart, it's still the same. <laughs> should be a number one record. So... I was trying to think back because I don't know how we know how we actually met. Met. Okay, I do. I do. I do. I loved Southern Gra- uh, your record. Mm-hmm. That's what Southern it was. Gravity. Southern Gravity. What I felt was because I didn't know you. I felt like Trailer Hitch was one of those songs they screwed up on big time because it was so good and radio didn't give it the shot that it deserved. Mm-hmm. And I remember just screaming remember about it on the radio. That. Just I, I couldn't believe that. That was not a massive hit because it was so good. And I was a little bit upset. (laughs) And I said, hey, why aren't we helping this song? It's so good. I didn't know you. We had never met. Right. And that was the first time that someone said, hey, would you like to meet Christian? And I was like, yeah. Seems nice. I didn't know you. Came up. Came to the studio. That's right. That's right. We talked a bit. A lot of people come to the studio. I talked to a lot of people. And I don't ever... You can do anything outside of my bubble. Right, right. And uh, I said, hey, we should get together. And never do I follow that up because I never think it's real. But for some reason, I felt like you were real. Like you were like, hey, do you want to just come over? We'll do something. We'll write. And so you were back in town because your permanent residence is in Atlanta, your main right. residence. Yeah. And uh, you're like, hey, I'm not going to place. Come over. Well, I was writing a record. And I went over and we wrote uh, Every Day is a Good Day. 
Wing Dan. Every day is a good day. And <laughs> that's right. That's how. And I, I was like, I have to be friends with that dude. He has three iPads going, seven guitars, two mandolins. His wife's playing with his feet on a pogo ball. It was the craziest <laughs> thing I'd ever seen. I was like, he's crazy like I am, but in a different way. And then I thought, yeah, we should be friends. And then since then, we've actually kept up a relationship. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't live here, so I can't. I don't have a whole lot of you know time, but. I also am not I, here very I, often. I, I know you're not, but I, I, I do appreciate it. You know, it's, I've been doing this for a very long time and it's very rare that you find like-minded people within the same work that you do or, and like-minded for me also includes this, um, passion with drive of things that you want to do. You know, it's like I wake up in the morning and I feel like there's just not enough time left to write all the songs I want to write or to do all the things I want to do. And, I kind of get that off of you when I'm around you. I, I get that feeling like, and I may be wrong. I don't know if I'm being presumptuous, but you got a lot, you know, that you're, that you're, it feels like I, in my imagination that you want to jump into. Like if it Too was much. movie time, you'd, you'd be like, yeah, let's make a movie. Or, makes, yeah, hey, yeah. you want to go, to, you know, <laughs> do we have enough money? Let's, let's buy a ticket on SpaceX. You know, let's, you know, whatever yeah. it is. You're like my therapist. You nail me in I kind of, but I like that about, and I, I, you know, I'm super suspicious of human beings um, after doing this long enough that not everyone's intentions are out in front of them. They're always a little bit guarded, and your intentions are always in front, so I, I appreciate that about you. You know, it's funny, too, as I was mentioning to you before we started. Mike, can you turn the air down a bit? It's a little hot in here. And Mr. Bush is in a coat, and I want to make sure— I'm he, in my French provincial outfit today. A, oh, a vest under a nice jacket. Well, wow. it's actually— Stitched into the jacket. Oh, it's a jacket with a vest built in. How about that? Very lazily French. See, look. And then there's a little French up here. A little French. What did you do today to be so dressed? You know, hip. and look, I, I even put on my... Uh, leopard glasses. My kind of leopard reading glasses. Um, I was helping Tyler Farr pick songs for his new record that I'm producing. And I thought that um, the way I would intimidate the song pitchers that on the other side of the table was to bring my pencils and my pencil sharpener and dress this way today, which is the opposite of Tyler Farr. It's, and, it's and, the just, exact and just quietly sharpen my pencils to a fine point while I looked at their songs as they pitched me crappy songs. Mm, elbow and, patches and, then, and all. And then, yeah, I just needed, a, I needed something today to intimidate because I'm the least intimidating person on earth. <laughs> I, in my imagination, when I woke up, that this is, this is what would help. <laughs> It's crazy and cool that you're working with Tyler because yeah. I, I like Tyler a lot and I feel like because now I kind of know you as a producer because of Lindsay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, right. you did a wildly successful album and it's not even started to be as successful as it's going to be. I know. And you did it with at a time with Lindsay when they didn't have a single out. Like they did an odd thing and said, go make a record and you and Lindsay go make a record and there was no single plan. There was nothing. Yeah. You made a record with... Going into it without a sound assigned to you. Right. I think that's maybe where I, I can help when it's an artist. And you did with her. And I was, you know, Lindsay and I are still close, but we were really close then. I, I Apparently, I was the very last to know. Oh, really? <laughs> As her producer. You know, and I live here, and you and I knew each other, but I had no idea. And so I'm in there, like, helping her pick songs and, like, oh, I hear you writing this. I don't know. What do you think about this, you know? And I just never brought up the question, like, in relationship songs, this sounds like you're feeling good about a relationship. (laughs) I never asked what relationship. So finally, she had to actually stop me 
and go, hey, I just want you to know, I know you don't listen to the radio often because in Atlanta we don't get your show. Not yet. Uh, and <laughs> um, she's like, I want you to know that, you know, Bobby and I are dating. I was like, you're freaking kidding me. And for a while, yeah. And she was like, no, really. I was like, well, thanks. I appreciate it. So which songs am I ascribing to this, Taylor <laughs> so, Swift? You now know, you like, have to think of me in the head. Uh, yeah. like, <laughs> and you have right now, she has, at the time of us recording this, her highest song ever with Criminal. Oh. Yeah, it's a 29 right now. Her highest song ever. Freaking yes! And I remember hearing the work text, and then after she was done with you, I was like, holy God, Christian's adding a whole live bit. It's like too brilliant. It's really cool to see you in that element. That's cool. I've been able to see all the sides. All the sides. Except the dad side. Have me as your kid, and then I'll have it all. <laughs> I'll know it all. Let me come live with you and be one of your kids, and I get it. My kids are pretty cool. You yeah. like them. Yeah. Well, let's. Okay. I, okay, I got sidetracked we'll go by far. You are doing t- uh, Tyler's record. I'm doing Tyler's record with him right now. Did you and Mask and I Bloodlines record? Pardon? Who's uh, who's the duo you did? Uh, uh, the Walker McGuire. Walker McGuire so is who it I, is. I didn't produce that, but I wrote their song that's on the radio now. That's what it it's is. It's called Lost. Okay, that's why you put it in the force. I was looking at in your that t- little box. Yeah. I was just. It was a. I'm having to pinch myself recently. You know, you you do this work for so long, and and you have to get no so often that there are times in which things fall into place. Much like you know, you see actors on movies like suddenly they look like they're super hot because they're in five movies at the same time. Well, that wasn't really the case. They made the movies at different times and the studios just accidentally released them all at the same time. And suddenly, you know, Iron Man is, you know, Robert Downey Jr. has a comeback or something. So you're Iron right? Man? Well, no, what I'm saying <laughs> is, I, you know, all this stuff happened yeah. and it, no, it wasn't, didn't happen on top of each other. It just released on top of each other. And I have a very difficult time taking the moment to stick a, candles into a cake and light them and then blow them out and take a moment to acknowledge what's happening so i've been trying to do that this year a little bit and things have been falling on top of each other i mean i'm just so proud of the the work that that Lindsay did and and, and that i did with her and then this walker mcguire single i had no idea i mean we wrote that in 45 minutes at high noon on a tuesday at a lake somewhere i didn't even know these guys and i loved the song but then they decided to record it, and I'm not sure I've had a song on the charts with someone else I didn't wasn't in the band. Right. At the same time that Sugarland now is we're back mm. in the thing, so all these songs are kind of hitting at the same time. And I was giggling the other day because someone said, "Okay, so it's either you or you that's going to be the most added this week." And I was like, "What do you mean?" <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my gosh, are you kidding me?" So I, I've always wondered about these guys who live here in town and they have like nine number ones in a year or some, something astronomical. I'm like, how does that happen? Um, now I, I now at least know what kind of the storm looks like. I don't know if it's the perfect storm. I hope there are many perfect storms to come. Man, I guess I, I missed the first round of Sugarland. Yeah, you did. I, miss, I didn't miss it as a fan because I went to a Sugarland show even as a fan. But really? I, yeah, but I missed it in Little Rock, Arkansas. I went and watched Sugarland. I went and watched you guys play with Kenny. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. and that's where I saw all the excitement and ju- jumping around. And it's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a lot. And I, I, it's a that's what I show. remember. Yeah, very much. So lots of bodies moving around. Yeah. Um, so, but I was a Sugarland fan more so than a Kenny fan. 
frankly, at the oh, time. That's cool. So I went to the show, and before I moved to Nashville, you guys weren't Sugarland. Right. We never crossed paths. Right. So the first time we crossed paths was you doing your solo record, <laughs> right. which I think is cool too because I liked you for you. So when everybody starts to say, hey, Sugarland, be my friend, just remember, I liked you for you. Just like uh, Blessed Noted. Union of Souls. She likes me for me. <laughs> So you remember good. those guys? Yes. Did you know those guys? No, I did not know them, but I know the song. Let me talk about this for a second. So, Sleep Number. Oh, yes, yeah, so as I do this podcast in my bedrooms, actually. Which, by the way, we have to like shut the door, Mike, when people come up here. Because it's weird. My bedroom door is open. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess they do see the old Sleep Number bed in there. Uh, I have a Sleep Number because, for me, I do struggle with sleep. And the great thing about Sleep Number is it's actually for me. It's the ideal firmness for me. I went into a Sleep Number store where you buy the bed. And you can lay on the bed there, and there's a screen. The one I went to, there's a screen above, and you look at it, and it shows you how you're laying and maybe why you're not laying right or not getting the right amount of sleep. And they give you a sleep number that's just for you. And my sleep number setting was, and I've been back since, but it's a 30. And if your partner has a different one, you both can have your own sleep number setting. The beds are so smart, they sense your every move. They automatically adjust to you, keeping you sleeping comfortably through the night. There's even an adjustment for snoring. Lift you up a little bit. I don't know if your bed does that. In honor of 52 weeks of... In honor of 52 years of football, not weeks, but years of football, uh, take $52 off any item from over 100 bucks from Sleep Number, which, by the way, the pillows are awesome there, too. Sleepnumber.com slash big game to get your $52 coupon now through February 4th. Again, sleepnumber.com slash big game. So I don't really know the origin of you, you guys coming together. Sugarland was an interesting beginning. You know, um, yeah. If you put it in time, um, I, I, I was signed to a record deal in Atlantic Records in New York as a rock act, like a folk rock act called Billy Pilgrim. And we were um, a, kind of a critic's darling. And for us, we were a huge success. But compared to our label mates, which were like Matchbox 20 was signed the same time we were and Hootie and the Blowfish and, and – um, uh, uh, Ed Rowland and Collective, Collective Soul, Soul yeah. and those guys. So we were all at, you know, it was all out of the Southeast at the exact same time. And our, our band, um, you know, Rolling Stone loved it. I, the review of our first album is in the Kurt Cobain issue when oh, he wow. died. Wow. So if you ever want to go read my first band's first national review. It was in that issue. Yeah, you can find it. <laughs> so that's sweet. Oh, yeah. There you go. Billy Pilgrim right here. Here's Insomniac. What's the vocal situation here? That's me singing. And my partner Andrew was also a singer. And that's my friend Ellis Paul there in the background. I'm going, Ooh. But I'm the lead singer on this, this song. Again. Dig my head down. The textures. Do you sing? Do you sing different in this? A little bit. I mean, I was 22. Okay. You know, but I've always had a raspy quality in my voice. But I was worried that country music wasn't gonna take it. It wasn't gonna accept my raspy voice. And at the time, Billy Pilgrim was kind of in its waning years. We had had a really pretty good run of it. Uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of records, which for us was giant. 
And we've been on tour around the world. Like we opened for Melissa Etheridge for a couple of years and we had opened for Bob Dylan and Beck and Tom Petty and all these bands. Right. And learned how to travel the world playing arenas. And I wasn't even 26 yet or 27. And, uh, I, I had a terrible tragedy. My mom died. Um, then they flew the planes into the buildings um, we, I've been working on other people's career. We'd help John, John get started and, and Sean Mullins. And, John Mayer. Yeah, John Mayer. He had, he had moved to Atlanta. And he had moved to Atlanta there. at the time. And was he with Clay? At the, he when you was. Met him? When I met him, he and Clay were working and my brother, Brandon, worked on that first record with them and then worked on John's first record. Um, and our bass player from Billy Pilgrim was Dave Fabriere. Wow. So you said first how, record. Do you mean like the EP Inside Once Out or Room for Squares? Which, which, um, the first record on Aware, which was Room for Squares. Okay. And then the one before that was kind of the one that had like the sweatshirts on. Yeah, inside one side. Yeah, the John Mayer. And that's, that's just Brandon right. working on that. Your but brother. He, he worked on both those records. Yeah. And um, so that's that was the world I was in. I was ch- kind of trying to help new artists get started um, on the coattails of whatever Billy Pilgrim was able to go forward. And that's how I knew Jennifer. Is she was an opening act for Billy Pilgrim. As Jennifer Nettles? As Jennifer Nettles' band. And before that, it was a duo she was in. And then they broke up, and, and then she went on by herself to keep making money in the Atlanta scene. And I, I had a major label record deal, so that was a, it was a big feather in your cap from down there. You, they didn't hand them out like candy like they do here. It was one at a time. So we were after the Black Crows and before Sean Mullins. Actually, we would have been right after Black Crows and then Collective Soul, then Billy Pilgrim, then Sean, then John Mayer, then back to Sugarland. Then this is all out of the same four blocks. Yeah, that's what it sounds. I mean, it's all right there. It's all in one space. Yeah. And if you go backwards, it was the Indigo Girls, and then it was um, Michelle Malone and Drag the River, and then you, then you're kind of moving towards Athens, like. Um, REM. B-52s, REM, Pylon, yeah. and those those bands. Um, and maybe after us, there was Hope for a Golden Summer, which was like a, a more Athens-Atlanta band and more alt. But did they start looking for bands in that area since there was success? Because a lot of times with the sound, we'll just use Seattle, which is the one that's used a lot. Yeah. When that Seattle sound happens and Nirvana turns all the hair bands into now it's grunge and they go find Pearl Jam and they go find out they find right. they start to search the scene for more do they do that in Atlanta too where they okay did. we have a few so let's go see what else is in this little they area they did very much and and it would come through a, either a lawyer or two that they were friends with A&R people on Sony or different places and they would come and they would you know this this little club and we played it was called Trackside Tavern and then the guy who was the bartender there named Eddie Owen opened up Eddie's Attic Eddie's Attic and so we that? all I was the first show at Eddie's Really? I painted the walls the night before and hoping for Michelle Malone on the Wednesday. And I graduated from college three days later. Wow. And uh, and got a record deal that summer on Atlantic Records. So I, I have had a major label record deal since I got out of college, which is really, like, it's it's asinine. It, it's a... It shouldn't probably have happened, but did you and Jennifer when you met? Was it hey, we're just artists and we're our own respective artists, or was it hey, we should maybe share ideas or sing? How does that happen? Because she's coming out of a duo, obviously unsuccessful, right? Well, it was an actually it was an invitation. 
Um, I didn't know her very well. So during Billy Pilgrim World, she came in and she was recording with Corey, I think, in the studio where I, I recorded all the time. And I remember walking in on one of their sessions and going, oh, that's kind of cool. But I, I didn't really know her. And she opened for us. And I unfortunately have to say at that time, I didn't show up early to hear the openers all the time. Um, and I regret that. I do it a lot more now. Um, but we never became friends. And then I remember being on a writer's night with her, which I think is irony. It's some, well, not irony, but I think it's fascinating. After Billy Pilgrim was kind of slowing down, I had started uh, um, writing songs with a local songwriter named Kristen Hall. And she was the third person in Sugarland at the very beginning. Kristen was the guitar tech for the Indigo Girls. Is that right? Yeah. And they just knew that she was a great songwriter. And she had moved back to Atlanta from L.A. And she wanted to write songs. And she knew me. And she called and said, do you have any songs left over? And I was like, yeah, I have a lot. Because Andrew and I aren't working as much, but I still have the same amount of songs. She's like, well, why don't you come over and help me and let me help you finish them? I was like, okay. And within two or three weeks, she's like, let's start a band. I was like, I need a band like I need a hole in the head. (laughs) (laughs) I I already have a band and I don't need another band, but I'm enjoying writing with you. And so we asked Dave Labriere to come over. And I was like, you know, I like being in a band with him. He and John weren't working at the time. And we wrote a song called Girl Called Tennessee. And it was on the first Sugarland record. And we just kept writing songs. And pretty soon... Dave didn't show up anymore, but Kristen kept calling and saying, look, I've got a band in the basement. Will you come write? And I was like, really? Okay. Well, all right. And I would show up and we would audition a singer because I was pretty convinced that my voice was not going to make it against Billy Currington. Okay. So you thought that you thought I'm not going to be the front voice. I, I don't, I didn't think I could sell it. Because at the time, 2002, country music singers were all, they were like, this, and they were all smooth. It was very interesting. And I kind of said, all right, well, what do you suggest? And she said, well, I suggest we get a female singer because there's a big hole in the, the world that's been left by the Dixie Chicks with them stopping working. I think it's some of the best music I've heard. And I said, all right, I don't know if I can get on board, but let me work at this a little bit. And I went out and I started, I bought a, an Emmylou Harris record uh, that... Uh, Daniel Lanois produced, and it was called Wrecking Ball. And the reason I bought it is because when my my the Billy Pilgrim record before that, went, the guitar player who was hired um, was producing Emmylou Harris up until that moment, and he put one of my songs on hold. And I'd never had a song on hold in my life. I didn't know what that meant. and Because I thought you had to write the songs that you sang. I didn't know there were two different jobs. Right. And... Um, I was fascinated because the day after we finished that Billy Pilgrim record, or the day we finished it, I walked out into the hallway and left, and I met a guy named Steve Earle that was in the waiting room. And Steve he, Earle, like Copyright Rosie Earle? And he had just gotten out of jail, and he was, <laughs> he was coming in to make his record with the same band, with the same producer in the same building. And I thought to myself, note to self, whenever this guy puts out his record, go buy it because it's going to sound exactly like your record. And wouldn't that be cool to see what it sounds like when the same band plays a different guy's songs, right? Um, So I had then bought also a Steve Earle record very close to the time I bought that Emmylou Harris record. And between the two, um, I thought to myself, well, if this is country music, I can do this because it sounds like U2 plus country music. 
right? Um, and what I've, I quickly learned is that country music had nothing to do with a fiddle, which actually was my first instrument. Like it, it had more to do with the story of this of, in the songwriting. And in the nineties, we weren't telling stories. We were telling emotions, right? We had, we were just trying to make you feel what it felt like. It was in that lyric. And so as soon as I knew this, I was like, Oh, okay. I think I can do this. So I went over to Kristen's house and I started playing things and we started auditioning people and there were five or six different people. And we came up with rules where we had to write a song or two with each audition to see if we could write with them. Oh, wow. So you wrote with them. And so too. if you look at the first Sugarland record, five or six of those songs have writers on it that none of them are Jennifer because she wasn't even in the band yet. Like, we were just cycling through and the songs were so good that we were getting. And so when she came into audition, she sang the songs. And, uh, I remember there was one song. It was a song that was the namesake of the band. It's called Sugarland, And I kind of wrote it in my shower one morning and came in and brought it to this group of people in the basement of Kristen's house and said, is it wrong or a curse? If I write a song with called the name of the band that we figured out last night, <laughs> And she was like, I, I don't think so. I think bad companies done it or things like this. And I was like, all right, well, if this is a curse, it's my fault. And Jennifer auditioned on that song. And when she got to the bridge of that song and was singing it, I just about lost my mind. I was like, that, that I can do. And so we sat down and we wrote two songs. And the first song was, <laughs> it was a song called Honky Tonk Heaven. And I, I don't think that it exists anywhere. I, we recorded it, but we didn't give it. We didn't show it to the label. And the second song we wrote was Baby Girl. Wow, is that right? Dear Mom and Dad, please send money. I'm so broke that it ain't funny. Well, I don't need much. It's enough to get me through. How about that? That quick. Yeah. Found it. Found it. Did you know you found it? I knew the song was good. And so it's hard to know. So we decided to play a show and we only had four songs or five songs that we could play. Um, like four of the ones we had previously written, maybe six, maybe we played honky tonk heaven that night and baby girl. And no one knew who our band was because we hadn't played out, but we each had individual crowds. Like Jennifer had a crowd that would, she had two or 300 people that come see her and Billy Pilgrim, you know, we had a couple hundred or more people that would come see us. And Kristen had a following of people that would come see her. And we thought, well, let's just play like a Tuesday or something, bill it as Sugarland, and then put our individual names in there and see if anybody shows up. And, uh, we got to baby girl and we played it and people cheered for after the last, when it got to the last course, they just got on their feet and started cheering. And I was like, Holy crap, this must be what it's like. If you're, Darius Rucker and you finally sing hold my hand for the first time and everybody goes bonkers you know and um, so I remember telling her I was like look I, I really don't want to do this in a van I want if we're going to do this I've done this before I want to do it in a bus and I want to shoot for arenas or stadiums like I want the target to be so high that if we miss it's going to be awesome <laughs> so but that costs money Oh, we had no, we had nothing to even do it. So we, we bankrolled it all from our little place 
um, we got our record deal because we <laughs> we sold tickets on a Greyhound on a bus that we rented, like a passenger bus. We sold fifty dollar tickets to fifty fans, and we bought a keg of beer and put it on the bus. And we got a gig at the last place I had gotten a record deal out of Nashville, which was 12th and Porter. I got my Billy Pilgrim record deal out of that room. So I called the same people and said, can we play in the, you know, whatever your showcase time is before you have to really open for business? And they said, sure. And they said, you know, you're, you can only have the tickets that you sell. And I was like, that's cool. We don't need to sell any tickets. And they were like, what do you mean? We're like, we're, we're bringing all of our people. They were like, okay. And they were kind of confused. And, and we said, what we really need are the seats for the like record people. Cause we couldn't get anyone to come to Atlanta where we actually had two or 300 people right. that show up. So we bust everybody in and walked in and played our five or six, seven songs and then handed our copy of our homemade record out to the record label. And Luke Lewis signed us that night. Did you feel like this might be a little too fast? Did you feel like we're ready? Oh, what? no. There's no such thing as that for me. I, I had already done it. It might have felt that way to other people, but I've been on a major label for eight years before then. But you hadn't been with them. And for no. me, that's – and with what I do in all aspects of my life, chemistry is the most important thing because I can't do anything without great people around me. Right. You know, right. even when I do stand-up, if I don't have the right people running lights and sound – I have to surround myself with better people than what I do because it makes me better. So here you are. There are three of you. You haven't spent a ton of time together. <laughs> and now you're embarking on this new life. A little. Was there any apprehension? Like, man, I don't even know if I like these people. <laughs> well, I think there's this kind of a joy in at least shared ambition. Um, I knew Kristen kind of. I didn't know enough that, I mean, maybe I did, that she was going to get anxious like that was not really a life she wanted. Um, I didn't know Jennifer very well at all, but um, we both seemed to have the skill to be in duos, you know. Um, and we knew how to we knew how to make music. It wasn't our first time. This is where we got to pay the bills real quick. Ah, I'd hand it to you. I saw you. Okay. I, I saw. I saw Christian grabbing for the spot. Uh, <laughs> I get so into the story to forget to do what. No, go how ahead. We get to keep the lights on here. Tax season is approaching, and this week is Tax Identity Theft Awareness Week. So if you're looking forward to getting your tax refund, which everybody is, tax identity thieves might be looking forward to it too. So fraudsters, basically, they use IRS, imposter scams. They just take numbers because they're so readily available, and they use those numbers to get information about you. One of four people have experienced identity theft, and if you're only monitoring your credit, your identity can still be stolen in ways that you may not detect. Thieves could sell your information on the dark web or get an online payday loan in your name. Boom. That's why LifeLock exists. That's why I have had LifeLock for years. Way before they're ever a sponsor or client or whatever you call a partner on the, on the podcast or the show, I was using LifeLock way before that, which makes it easy to talk about. LifeLock detects a wide range of identity of threats. Uh, if they detect your information is being used, you get alerts on your phone, on your email, they smoke signal, all kinds of things. If there's a problem, a U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But LifeLock can uncover the threats that you miss 10% off if you use the promo code BONES. 1-800-LIFELOCK. Use BONES or LifeLock.com. Use the promo code BONES and save 10% now. And there you go. You see? That's how we do it. You are really good at this job. That's all I know how to do. 
<laughs> you have to find what you know how to do and really target and, and just it. go right into it. So you, what was the the first single for Sugarland? Was Spinning it Baby Girl? Girl? Yeah, it was the first song. And um, it took forever. It was 52, 54 weeks. A whole year. And uh, it, it died a couple of times. Revisionist history. This is just a huge song that made you guys instantly famous. It was never for, It was never number one. Wow, it's so funny because what I like about Sundays kept it out of number one. What I like about yeah, uh, Craig Morgan. Yep. So I was talking to Keith Urban. It's funny you say this, and Keith and I were talking about number ones. I think I was talking about whatever. I have this conversation. I'm so fascinated with number ones for the sake of it, and how this format throws them away so much that the number ones. It's a nice little, you get a trophy, but those aren't the songs that last. Well, they weren't all, I mean, it wasn't always this, wasn't always this way. Okay, so I know the way now, and I completely gripe, I gripe about the system so much, ad nauseum, people, (laughs) it's, and we're also not able to live with music, because we're just cycling through so much. Yeah, it's moving pretty quick now. But the fact that that wasn't a number one song, and could quite possibly be one of the three biggest songs that people associate with Sugarland ever, ever, and you guys our grant, you guys have done it all, and that wasn't a number one. Uh-uh. That just shows you that a song doesn't have to be given a ranking to last the test of time. Right. Well, I mean, whether it, what I learned very quickly is that um, <laughs> the check that you get is the exact same for number two as you get for number one. Anything five, four, three, two, one. <laughs> yeah. Basically, it's the basically same. the same. Yeah. And and I didn't know that it was such a science or a chess game to move up a chart. And it was a real humbling for me because um, in Billy Pilgrim we had we had four number ones in AAA, you know, and we we thought that was fantastic, but we didn't really know what that meant because at the time you couldn't really tell what was a real chart or wasn't. And we, I remember stepping off an elevator at the ACMs and the maybe David Moberly or maybe it was John Anger or one of the radio guys came to me and shook my hand and said, congratulations. And I said, congratulations for what? And they were like, you have the longest charting single in recorded country music history. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> and they were like, well, it stayed on the chart the longest. It went up the slowest. It, 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 it had the longest arc. And I've never forgotten that moment. I'm sure it's been surpassed because things are I think slower Lee, I now. think Lee Bryce ended up beating it with like 57 weeks yeah, in the last it, couple of years. But I would say that I love the idea that even if it goes slow, as long as it goes, what you're doing is just reaching more people. I'm really agnostic about the award. I don't really care. But my my ambition has always been reach the most amount of people that you can reach with doesn't matter what it is. Put it in a, a commercial, give the song away, put it on the radio, put it on television. I don't care. Just I want to reach the most amount of people. So the song takes fifty let's just say fifty two weeks for the sake of the story. That also to credit your label because I wasn't involved, that costs money oh my God. to continue pushing a song. And not only that, it takes their heart being in it to yeah. go. We know this song is moving slow, but we have faith in not only the song but the band. And there's something to be said about commitment these days in the creative industry. <laughs> yeah. And even these last fifty years, there's something to be said about that. Yeah. So, did you feel like okay, they they have our back a bit? Like they sat and pushed us for fifty weeks to record or to, to radio stations. 
Yeah, well, I was I was impressed. I, I have I've really had quite a run with record label presidents. I was signed by Any uh, turnover. Yeah, well, I was signed by Ahmed Erdogan to Atlantic Records with his very first female A and R person was Jennifer Stark, and she she she's the one who signed Billy Pilgrim, and it was in in lieu of Uncle Tupelo. I guess they didn't accept the deal. <laughs> Which, <laughs> You're the fallback. Yeah, we were the fallback, <laughs> and then they became Wilco and Sunday yeah. and all that stuff. And and uh, we, you know, we were the second choice. But I have to say that the commitment that I learned from those employees and and the the habits I learned, you know, um, translated. So when I I got to Mercury and and it was Luke Lewis and 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 all of the people that worked there at the time, they were into making artists. They were not into making singles, and. I understood that, and it made sense, you know. Um, Shania Twain was the big winner on that label when we signed, and uh, George Strait was pulling in a lot of money, and uh, Billy Currington was the new signing, and, you know, like, it was very interesting at the time, and I knew how to stay off their radar to keep from draining their coffers because I had learned it 10 years earlier. Probably had to do it just for your own sake. Ten years earlier, yeah, like to well, eat, yeah. And we didn't, we didn't take an advance, really. You know, we didn't take tour support. We we never took anything from the label. I'm one of the few bands that I think at that label um, got checks, which makes it easier to spend money on you if you're not taking money already. Yeah, I wanted that was my idea. Yeah. That's what I learned in the '90s was all of my education, which. I, you know, I absorbed everything about how to be in the record business as as early as I could and got out of college and applied that knowledge as fast as I could. And by the time we got here, um, they were still in the business of spending money, but they just didn't have to spend it on us. So after that song runs its course and puts you guys on the map, where did it, where did it peak? Number two. It was, there's a moment you can do this. You can have this moment if you want it. Get online, go to YouTube, and type in Sugarland playing Baby Girl at the ACMs. And you will see people who are broke closing the show. We were broke. I was $40,000 in debt. Was that when Jennifer had her shoes off? Yeah. So that show, we were supposed to sing... 30 seconds of baby girl into the presenter microphone early in the show. Did something happened with the closing act. Something happened. So if you go back and figure it all out, there was, there were two or three things that went down and suddenly they asked us, Hey, can you sing a minute instead of 30 seconds? And do you have your instruments? And we were like, sure. And they said, okay, I know this is short notice, but can you get a band here in two days? We we're like, why? And they're like, well, can you do an abbreviated version of your song? Like a, a real performance? Can you get a drummer? Do you have a track? What can you sing to it? We're like, uh, yeah, we're on the phone calling people. <laughs> and then they they got up to the rehearsal day before the show and they said, so George Strait's sick. That's what it was. I remember that. He's sick and we were wondering if you would close the show. And so we closed the show. We were people that nobody knew. And Jennifer had on the same shoes as like, Sarah Evans or something and she's like oh forget it and just threw him off and ran out there and then the the curtain goes up and we start singing baby girl right and 
I'll never forget, and I will forever be grateful. There was this, to me, incredible pause between us finishing the last note and people clapping. There was just nothing. It was like dead. And I watched Tim McGraw and Faith Hill stand up, and they were dead center in that room. And they stood up and started clapping. And then every, in my mind, they guilted everyone else in the room. <laughs> what do you clapping. now, looking back, what do you assign that silence to? That brief moment, what do you assign it to? Uh, huge amounts of adrenaline and shame and worry. Like, you know, adrenaline slows down your perception. So I think we hit the last note and I didn't know if we had sucked or if we hadn't or if we sounded good or if we didn't. I didn't know anything about performing on television like that. And sure enough, you know, people talk about that day as, oh, that's when we found out who you were. That's when I, I remember the shoe thing. When yeah. you started, that's something I remember seeing her on with no shoes. Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh, that's really cool. They seem like normal folks. <laughs> well, we were. Just that alone, <laughs> that small and it wasn't a contrived thing. I guess she was just wearing the same shoes as someone else, yet still didn't. Oh, yeah. It wasn't on purpose. But, I mean, if you can put it in your head, I mean, I, I try to remind new artists of this all the time, that you can close the ACMs and seven hours earlier you were in your hotel room trying to do computer programming in order to pay your bills because you're $40,000 in the hole. Like, that's real. That's going to happen. And you're going to have to make those choices early on. We didn't take publishing deals. We didn't take anything. You know, we just went the long way. And sometimes that's the right choice. It's not always the right choice for everyone, especially not today. But um, at the time, that's what it is. So there's this kind of authenticity to <laughs> the song being performed by <laughs> By, by people who actually do need money. Duo. There's, <laughs> yeah. there's something real. There's yeah. one who can't really afford shoes, not wearing yeah. shoes. Yeah, yeah right. Um, but in retrospect, you know, I we didn't have a number one song until our second album. So, but on, we had hits on that. Whole yeah, on the first on the first record, you had what? Talk. What were the hits? Um, we had Baby Girl, and then we had Something More. Now I know all the answers to this. So as you're talking through right. them, there's gotta be like, something. <laughs> I'm just letting you tell. I know all the answers, okay. but I don't like to know all the answers. Okay. I like to, you know. we, had a, we had a song called Just Might Make Me Believe, yeah. which was Kristen's song. It was the only song that she wrote by herself. And then we had um, uh, Down in Mississippi and Up to No Good, which was on that record. And then, they, they add, then Kristen quit right at the end of that. And we had to go in and make a second record in two weeks. So really? So she and I, Jennifer and I, wrote that whole second record in two weeks in January. January. Did you not have to write the record? We had to shoot all the photos, and I mean, every, the whole image had to be kind of altered, right? Because everything you had, all the yeah, we yeah, we started over, but it was kind of cool, and we knew how to start over because we had just done it. Yeah, I guess a couple <laughs> of times, you know. Yeah. So it, it was just I, I had to keep reminding us that oh, you just start over, and for terrible, and then so want to was on that. The whole world could change in a minute. Just yes. one kiss could stop it spinning. We could think it through. And then um, my version of The Who, which was uh, Settling. <laughs> jam. It's a cool it's a jam. jam. Yeah, and if you listen to that song and you listen to Sweet Louisiana Sound, you'll hear a lot of the same stuff from Billy Pilgrim. Maybe I won't, but you would. Because I'm so not a genius I, yeah. like you who can hear. This is a jam. Yeah. 
upstroke. A bit of that. It's that. <laughs> to me, I hear the '90s ish Third Eye Blind yep. up on yeah. The, yeah. Da, 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 yeah, same thing. Da, yeah, because that's, ah, that, that's, that? that's where I'm from. Um, and then uh, what? Uh, uh, Everyday America was a next single, and that, we were pulling from my bag of old Billy Pogram tricks during that because we we just needed songs. I was like, pull out of this basket. We'll write whatever that lyric is. And I had had that song for a lady named Beth Wood in the early '90s, and. I just redid it and we got to rewrite it with Lisa Carver and Jennifer loved it. And so we rewrote that whole song. And then, uh, then stay. Was there is one thing you shouldn't know. We don't have to live this way. What's you know what's cool about this? Check this out. Baby, why don't we recorded this three or four times and this is me and my brother and Jennifer playing it once. So that's Brandon playing Hammond, and he and I are looking at each other and doing the little brother speak, because there's no tempo. And I'm watching her sing, and we're doing it live. So that's one performance. This track is one performance, no click track, None. just visual cues. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And oh, I, it was a song that she had written by herself years before, and the Kristen who was in the band didn't really like the song, and I kind of did. And so when it came up on the second record, it was I was like, hey, what do you think about that? She was like, oh, I love that song. But we tried it with a band. We tried it to sound like the Black Crows. We tried all these you different... You tried it faster, different tempos. Yeah, and it didn't yeah. work. And uh, we were kind of at the end of our rope. I was like, can I just call my brother? Can we just do that? <laughs> she was like, sure. And it was magic. Was that the song that stadiumed it for you guys? Well... I think that Kenny Stadium does. Fair. Is what happened. And we were a very good compliment to his show. I went to that show. I went to when like you guys we, were with like, Kenny. Yeah. Like he taught us a lot about how to take your music and do that. But I think um, I think Settlin probably turned us into a stadium act. And Stay uh, showed people that her voice and her ability to emote was so highly developed. The video moved people too. When you think well, of yeah, over and, the last 10, 15, 20 years, the videos that really stick with you, I remember like, that video. So that we ran out of money at the label. They didn't want to put out any more songs. And we said, but we want to, why don't we try this one? They were like, you want to put out an almost five minute acoustic song for the radio? And we were like, well, I mean, all you have to say is no. And we said, can we have a video budget? They're like, no, you're out of money. You have like fifteen or $30,000 or something to do this, which bought us half a day. So that video is the way that it is because we didn't have anything. We, we had just played the stadium in Philadelphia the night before we shot that and we were doing it in New York in a soundstage that we could afford with somebody who would only work until two or three o'clock. And I didn't even have a good, like my guitar tech forgot to put a guitar in the back and I had to borrow a guitar. <laughs> I ended up buying that guitar I borrowed and I loved it so much. But, um, we, we, we went in and filmed two passes or three passes and Jennifer was on the edge in her personal life at the time. And she just started weeping. Is the crying real? Absolutely real. 
And I got upset. <laughs> the director, I was like, hey. I was like a gorilla. It's <laughs> like, why are you making her do this? <sighs> Everybody out. <laughs> and she's like, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. And then there's the second pass of the video, and then she just kind of loses it, just stops singing at some point. And we didn't have a chance to do anything other than what you just saw. And um, the people at the label loved it because it was so real. And then so they sent raw. it. They sent yeah. it to the record company or the radio stations. And I think the video is what really helped the programmers get on board. Um, and I'm forever grateful. I mean, geez, that song won us a Grammy. You know, like that's unreal. <laughs> the video just sits with me. Yeah, that's it it's does. cool. And now that I know the story, the video is so awesome because you're broke. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was the end yeah. of, of wow. what was going to happen. And they, we were supposed to just go make another record. And I'm so happy that that song had what it had because it, it creates this thing that I see a lot now, which is you get momentum on something like, um, like girl crush or something. Like I was, I was telling those guys, I was like, well, you guys got one. You got one of those because your next one is going to be all of the fuel that that one generates, you will burn on your next rocket stage. And it's incalculable and you can't, you can't predict it. But if you keep your head down and you keep working, you'll come across it. So that song does what it does. There's a immense pressure to follow up a monster with another monster. <laughs> right. So what do you do? Uh, we went to Atlanta and we told everyone that we are no longer making records in Nashville. And you will have to come to us. And how did that go over? Like lead bricks. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you got to remember, like we rolled into the studio where Springsteen had been making The Rising, where Stone Temple Pilots had made all their records, or Pearl Jam made their records. We rolled into the exact same place, right? And we brought our producer down and our, our Nashville kind of players. And we wrote that record while we were on the road. But it took a while, and we were obsessed with using the acousticness and the authenticity of the music we grew up with in Atlanta, which was like R.E.M. and the Indigo Girls and, and the Black Crows and all these kind of Atlanta, Southern, but pop, but rock, but were based primarily on country music, you know, um, Georgia Satellites and all this stuff. And can we make that kind of album? And I think everyone was expecting us to go, at least in the in the record label, they were hoping that we would <laughs> go super anthemic, gigantic, whatever. And then we made this essentially acoustic rock record, um, Love on the Inside, that had um, All I Want to Do on it. Jam. Yeah, total jam. Yeah. I love that song. It had uh, uh, shit happens. Yeah, it happens. It happens. Yeah, right. Yeah. Did you try to go and write that on the uh, CD, and they said make it it happens? Well, we did that when we were writing it. We wrote that with Bobby Pinson, and he kind of had the groove to it. And we're really fast writers together, and Bobby did a great job on that song. See, yeah. I was trying to get it in there because I thought it would be funny. And then Already Gone was on that record. I was already gone. Yeah. I was already I mean, these songs gone. were going to the top of the chart in eight and ten weeks at a time. 
So where we had been 54 weeks on our first song, we're now eight or nine weeks on a song going from when it hits the chart to the top of the chart. So we were burning through songs. Um, and this tour ended up being on television. So we had a summer special. I was obsessed with remembering seeing concerts on television. I remember seeing the Garth Brooks concert on the New uh, York, New York one. And I was like, how do we do that? And this record, Jennifer and I were completely aware that the distance between what was happening in culture and what was happening on television was closing. The gap was closing. And we vowed to each other that every song on this record would be on television. Some way, somehow, we would make it so that every single song we would either perform or there'd be a video or something. And we did it. We pulled it off. <laughs> and I don't know how we did it, but I mean, we're four performances later on the ACMs playing What I'd Give or something. <laughs> we're like in deep, deep tracks. But we had a summer special on ABC. They allowed us to do this. Now, they didn't, they, we had to pay for it ourselves. Which part? Uh, the entire filming and the recording and everything. So we took the money from our shows and we had a 22 camera shoot in Lexington, Virginia. So you reinvested. One, one time. We had one shot. <laughs> wow. And then we took all the footage back and they edited it together and they made a an hour and a half concert video and then they edited it down to 45 minutes and put it as a primetime special in the summer. Did they buy that back from you? No. So you take your money and create it. They air it, but they don't buy it back from you. Um, we got the label paid us for our investment. Yeah. But we didn't get any money after that. And um, what we decided was they were going to put it out as a, um, they, they were afraid people weren't going to buy DVDs anymore. <laughs> and, uh, so we put out a cover record to go with it and they sold it. They were doing exclusives with different box stores and this one was with Walmart. And so they bought like 300,000 copies and then never came out again. I don't think you can get it anywhere right now, but that was the kind of trajectory is that we had to keep investing in ourselves and, um, using our money because the labels were going broke then. Remember less and less money was coming in and by love on the inside, we were making more sales for the label than anyone else on the label. So suddenly we're carrying the, we're in the front of the cart where Shania used to be. And it was weird. And then we went and, and essentially made a rock record <laughs> that everyone thought we were crazy for. And now is probably one of my favorite records we ever made it was the incredible machine. Yeah. You know, and it had a, it had stuck like glue on it. Yep. Again, it is. Did, uh, did you write this one? Yeah. Did you write this with Kevin? I did. Actually, Kevin pitched me the chorus to this song. So Kevin, by the way, Kevin Griffin from Better Than Ezra, who I, I probably went to 20 Better Than Ezra shows. <laughs> I was such a diehard Better Than Ezra fan. And so last night we played a show at the Ryman, and I had Kevin come out. And we I did good and this. desperately wanting. It was a great, Christian, I've got to play and do a lot of cool things in my life. Did that freak you out? It might have been my favorite musical moment that I've ever been a part of. And Kevin's so, so nice and kind. And oh, he's he, the greatest guy ever. He says, whatever whatever you want to do, we'll do it. And I said, well, I would play deeper tracks like this time of year. Or I said, but the 
the fans will want to hear good, obviously. Right. And so we played good and desperately wanting. And I was just doing BGVs and was right. playing, playing guitar. And I, I knew this song from when I was a kid. Right? But, and then he threw it to me and let me. It really was full circle. There were two things that happened last night. And we'd actually invited you guys to come play. I know. And, and then you were we hosting couldn't. a different award. Yeah. Then you got the flu. And it was, then it was you let nutty. everybody down. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but um, so Darius came out. And Darius was my first ever radio interview at 17 years old. First person I ever interviewed. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And so Darius and I have paralleled with each other for a long time. Oh, my God. And Me too. Yeah. And so <laughs> he's been my guy. Like in That's different great. formats, and so Darius comes out and he jumps on stage in the middle. We're we're close enough where Darius just walks out in the middle of our set. He doesn't care. He just walks out. We're doing Purple Rain. Darius walks out and starts singing Purple Rain with us, <laughs> and he's like, "I sing the song." I said, "I'm going to sing it." So him and Natalie Stovall are going back and forth, and it's Jeez. amazing. Then he does his new single, then his wagon wheel, and I said, "Hey, you can't interrupt our set without me making you do something extra." So I played Cracked Review uh, five million times, right <laughs> on tape and then DVD or on, on CD, and I said. I would like for you to do Hold My Hand and I'd like to sing it with you. And he goes, okay, with a little love. And he passed it over and I'm like, this is heaven. I did better than Ezra and Hootie the same night. <laughs> I'm 15 again. Yeah. This is awesome. So that was pretty exciting. But Kevin Griffin wrote that song with you. So he did. And, and uh, I have to say that I, I attribute our drummer, Travis McNabb, who I've referenced a couple times in our conversation, but Travis was originally who helped me and Billy Pilgrim get our record deal. And then he went on to play in a band called The Beggars, where maybe he was in Seven Simons. Then he worked with me in all my recordings. And then he went on to be in The Beggars. And then he went and joined Better Than Ezra for 15 years. And I called him at some point when Sugarland had kind of graduated into Kenny Chesney Stadium shows and said, Hey, man, <laughs> you're not going to believe what I'm doing now, but I have a country band and I could really use your drumming awesomeness. I see that Better Than Ezra is not on the charts anymore. What are you doing? And he was like, oh, well, I'll come audition. And so he came and auditioned and eventually got the job, right? And so I've always felt a little terrible that I had taken... He's still the, the Ezra the, drummer. The Ezra drummer, right? <laughs> and uh, so at some point, Kevin... Uh, Travis started representing, hey, look, let me let Kevin pitch you a song. I said, well, Jennifer and I are writing Incredible Machine all by ourselves. We're not going to take outside songs. And if I if I open it up to that, I got to call Bobby Penson. I got to call all these people, you know, uh, that had been on our records that a very small amount of writers that we had written with. Because I'm taking money off their table if I don't allow them in. And if I get one guy in and it happens to be the alt-rock guy, they're going to kill me. I'm just starting to make friends, you know? He said, well, just let me pitch, having pitch one thing. I said, well, make sure it's not a full song and make sure that um, if we, if we don't like it, we don't have to take it. And if we do like it, then we can write it to make it fit as Sugarland because we're the only people who know how to make a Sugarland song. No, we've never cut an outside song. And, uh, he pitched us that chorus, and it freaked me out. I loved it so much. How does the chorus sound when he pitches it? What does he pitch to you? Uh, it was the, there you go, heartbeat again, heartbeat again. And he had a co-writer named Shy Carter, who was new in town. He was like a Nelly writer, or had written in the Nelly's camp. And I was half being kind to Travis, to just because he asked me, and I felt it. guilt. Yeah. And then I, the other half is, the song was so catchy and it was at the very end of our 
recording sessions and I was like, geez, Jennifer, I kind of like this. It scares me. And I, I like things that scare me a little. And she listened to it and she's like, okay, I'm game. So we wrote the rest of it and sent it back to them and said, do you hate this? And they were like, no, 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 go right ahead. And, um, we recorded it that day. And, uh, Kevin, you know, I had to keep calling him because I said, you know, this is going to be a single. The label likes it the most and it's got a, like a rap part in the back of it. I hope you don't hate it, but we were going to hire, we were going to get a, a guy from Atlanta to rap and he wanted like hard, cold cash. And we thought, well, with save the money and Jennifer, why don't you just do it? So I went upstairs and we wrote the rap in the back of it. And then people started on radio cutting the rap out and like radio programmers were shortening the song on their own and it caused a bit of a stir. And so I had to call Kevin and say, Kevin, I don't know your co-writer, but can you get him to keep signing off on these promos? Because the writers all have to agree to things. And I didn't know the guy and he was causing trouble. He was like, no, I'm not going to sign that. And I'm not going to do this. And I was like, look, Kevin, you need to get your buddy in line. <laughs> Cause I, I've been over backwards to make this work and I love it. And I think it's actually polarizing enough that people are listening to it and it sounds enough like Shirley. but also is weird. You know, it's, it's challenging people because no one had ever had a, a rap or anything. Like, Aldine didn't exist with his uh, collaborations yet. And, um, so we were kind of getting carved out of, uh Oh, I think, Jennifer and Christian went off the reservation. I think we're now done with the big string of hits with Sugarland, and the record label kind of stayed on it. And Shy came around and started to understand that he could get more business right. <laughs> if he did this. And uh, and then things started to smooth out, and that that song went really well, and the the album sold really well. And we then we launched the, probably the most ambitious tour we'd ever done was that tour. If you saw a Sugarland tour that you will never forget. It will be that. I remember we were playing and you've been nice enough to play with my goofy band, the raging idiots. And I, I love like, your goof. I was like, band. Christian, will you, I felt better. I was like, will you play? You're like, no problem. I'll play guitar. Come out. We'll sing songs. And I, I remember asking you, I said, Hey, when you're playing stadiums, like, is it just amazing? You know, you know what? Sometimes sound doesn't work in stadiums either. It's just like you're playing at a bar. Like <laughs> you get it. You get one ear that work. It's just bigger. It's just it's a just lot bigger. more people you're failing in front of. <laughs> I still remember that conversation. You're like, you think it's everything's perfect, but sometimes it's worse because there's just so many more things to happen. Yeah, man. Like that you're messing with in your head that nobody even knows. Yeah, there's a whole psychology to performance that on those large scales that's that's super interesting, and it's there's no one to ask. You know, because not a lot of people. Not a lot have of people did it. There. Yeah. You know, I remember asking Kenny, "How do you start your show in the back of the stadium?" And he said, "Oh." Because you can't, once you walk out in front of those stadium speakers, the delay is so great that in your microphone, you're hearing yourself uh, two or three seconds after you're singing, right? And I said, how do you do it on the other end of the stadium when you like come up out of the ground (laughs) magically? He said, oh, I learned this from the Rolling Stones. The flicker light. The flicker light. Yeah. There's a strobe that keeps you on time. Just sing to to the light. So how do you learn that unless somebody... You rent a stadium of practice, right? <laughs> is, that what, is that what you guys did? Did you rent a big space and practice singing to a 
No. No. But, uh, but <laughs> I, I, it's invaluable, that kind of wisdom. And that's why I take my mentoring so seriously when I'm working with new artists is like, look, there's no book. And most of these people quit. And the people who taught me are not here to teach you. So it's my job to pass this flag on to you. Here are the following tricks I learned. Go. <laughs> pass it on to somebody else. You guys have this phone conversation. You, you're talking about coming back. And you come back. And then here's this song. Don't be afraid to change. I love you still the same. Still the same. Still when you hear it on the radio again, after you've been through it and not through it and... Is it cool to hear Sugarland on the radio again? I haven't heard it yet. You haven't? Uh-uh. Oh. My friends have all heard it. And my kids have heard it. And I was like, oh, I can't wait for me to hear it. And you know, it doesn't count if someone knows you're listening and they play it. I tell this new artist, too. If, <laughs> if you're at a station and they go, hey, Jimmy Jim's coming in. Here's his new song. We know he's listening right now. That doesn't count. It's the joy no, of hearing it gotta, randomly. Yeah, you gotta, you got to discover it. You haven't heard it yet. Uh-uh. And I'm really excited to, to know because... As a producer, you know, I produced this song as well as wrote it. And there's things I want to know on because radio processing does something to songs. And I learned from Hugh Padgham, who was the guy who made the police records and the, the uh, Phil Collins records. And he taught me things about how to record stuff so that when it gets on the radio, it sounds bigger. And that was in 1993. And his rules, I, I applied to this song, and I still want to see if it's true. Well, after you hear it on the radio, you let me know because I'm anxious. You know. <laughs> you know, I was just I was looking at a lot of your because I I love that solo album that you did too, and I know we're well, not even talking you. about that. But I I even thought after the solo album, I thought Sing Along was such a freaking good song. Thank you. I remember I just hearing too. it and going. And I remember playing it. Christian, I get really disenfranchised with the bubble of Nashville, which is why I'm also polarizing because I will yell at myself, which means (laughs) my people, and be like, what are you thinking? Like, you're just not seeing the forest and the trees sometimes. And I've thought that twice with your songs, Uh. with trailer hits and sing-alongs. I remember playing sing-along like crazy. Hey, listen to this. You know, who cares? I'm on 100 stations, and I have the like the love of this song. How can you and Paducah not love it? It just, it, you're not taking a risk. I don't know. I'm so frustrated, Christian. It may oh, be. Well, I, I thank you, first of all. But you, you sh- I'm not asking for thanks because I just I thought know. it was that good. If, if you were not here, I would, I would say the same thing. I was so disappointed in just what the people that do what I do. And I'm, I disappoint people too. I know that. But they all disappointed me in this instance. Well, you're a music fan, which is different than being a radio host. Fair. Okay. And I, I'll, you got you to gotta accept that. But, um, I will say that uh, <laughs> before this Sugarland phone call came, I finished my next solo album, which is now sitting here waiting. And I cannot wait to play it for people. I can't do that yet. But um, holy smokes, I had no idea um, that all this stuff was going to land on top of each other. <laughs> but I'm very grateful. Uh but I'll tell you this much, and I, I love it because I, I like it that you're the only one who kind of gets this information. Um, I got encouraged by my wonderful manager right over there and, uh, and, and my publisher at the time, uh, still my publisher, uh, Julie. And the two of them, I played a show on the 4th of July this past year, 
and I got asked to do it by the guys that I sit on the Grammy board in Atlanta with, and a guy named uh, Jay Fly, who's the a drummer, uh, an R and B like huge session drummer, and he also plays with like Bobby Brown and all sorts of people. And he said, Christian, will you please come out and play? I keep asking you every year, but will you and your brother please come out and play my 4th of July show? It's on television. It's downtown in Centennial Park. And I was like, absolutely, Jay. I had no excuse this year. I was like, okay, Jay, I'll come. Because I really did need to. And I, I had been busy the other years. And this year I was free. And there was no reason I shouldn't do that. Uh, but I told him, I said, Jay, you know, I can't imagine that you know, 60,000 African-American people are going to know Trailer Hitch or Baby Girl. So what do you want me to play? Like, I'm trying to be entertaining for you. I want to, I want to reflect well on you. Help me. And he's like, oh, I love Trailer Hitch. And I said, okay. And I, we, we rolled in, we did sound check and there were five background singers and there were like seven horn players and three keyboard guys. And, I, they landed a freaking earth, wind and fire song on top of trailer hitch. And I have never been so happy in my entire life. And I remember turning around after that, after we'd finished the song and I watched 60,000 strangers dance to a song they probably never heard. And I turned around to Jay and I was like, country music needs this party. I don't think it's ever seen this party and this party needs to happen. And if we ever get a chance, let's do that. And I left the stage and I thanked everybody and I went on with my day. And um, I think I said the same thing to to Whitney and to Julie and to even my brother, Brandon. He's like, well, why don't we do it? And I'm like, oh, no, we can never do that. I don't even think I have the songs for stuff like that. And they were like, you have millions of songs. Just go through them and figure it out. So I had this crazy thing happen where I took songs that I I normally write songs in Atlanta and bring them to Nashville and record them with Nashville, great Nashville musicians. And in this case, I took a bunch of songs I wrote in Nashville and took them to Atlanta and played them with that band. And I couldn't be more confused as to how to ever perform these songs live. (laughs) Like, I, I remember calling... You and saying, I just recorded something I can never play because I don't know how to do it. Um, it was like Aretha Franklin's horn section and Jill Scott's horn section and like Justin Timberlake's music directors in there. And, and, and I mean, it was insane what was happening. And, uh, I love the fact that it felt like I was coming so out of control. I was discovering, my songs through the fingers and the mouths and the rhythms of people that were complete strangers to me. And it made so much sense. So in a lot of ways, um, it felt a lot like what I had imagined Paul Simon felt like when he made Graceland. Like you took songs that you knew in a place that you didn't know and you stopped holding on to it so tightly and you started to discover what's going on around you. And when you say that, you think of that record, it's like, you know, Diamonds. Yeah. And how that song starts. I mean, I have, there are things on this set of recordings that I just did that I, I don't know how it happened. Well, I don't know when it's going to come out, but I'll listen to I, it. I can't wait, I cannot wait to, to share it with everyone. And, and I hope it happens this this 
calendar year, um, maybe in pieces or parts, uh, it'll start to, to happen, especially with the, you know, new attention on Sugarland. I'm sure people will start digging backwards through our catalogs and our solo records and things and start to really assimilate. And I may be able to play some of these. I mean, if I can physically do it, um, play some of these on, while we're on tour and I, I'm just super excited. So thank Man, you, you got, for be, you for supporting so the things. Going on. Well, I support what I listen. I like you, but if it wasn't good, I would support it. I'll be honest <laughs> with you. Well, I, I appreciate that about yeah. you too. Like, don't play the ones that suck. Yeah, I mean, I I, I try not to. I try not to. <laughs> if so much, um, do you have any more spots? Are we good? good. Perfect, because I have more things. Okay. Your brother, by the way, Brandon. Brandon Bush. Uh, I can Power tell you name. just from <laughs> Lindsay. I've and I've met Brandon before, but just from Lindsay working with. She comes in and is like, Brandon's one of the greatest musicians I've ever seen my, with my eyeballs. Absolutely. And Brandon also played with Train, right? Yeah. He was the piano player in Train. He likes to call it the nadir of their career. But he he got the job after Drops at Jupiter because they didn't have a piano player. And um, Did they have to get one because of that song? Dun, yeah, dun, so for dun, long, dun. apparently that's what Brandon's job was. So um, they <laughs> they had the song happen... And then they just put the piano on track because they didn't have anybody who played it. And then he went out to audition on the Calling All Angels. Meaning, while they're playing live, for the, the somebody on a computer just hits a button and it plays a piano it over plays the top. The piano there's no piano the player out yeah, there. Yeah, there's right. a computer playing right. the piano, and then they play to the click in their ears. But that song is so popular that I, I don't care who you are. Once it comes on, you start singing it. You know, it was it was Pavlovian for me, and I loved the song when it came on the radio. I was like. Oh my gosh! This is everything I wanted from Elton John, except through Pat yeah. Monahan. You know, <laughs> it was so good. And um, Train was kind of born out of the same space as Billy Pilgrim, and kind of a little bit before John Mayer. It was the same. The Aware people, or the people Latterman, and all the people are, that discovered both of them. And um, Brandon joined the band as a sideman, and then they they were like, "Oh my God!" The same thing as Lindsay. You're so talented. Can you just be a part of our band. <laughs> so he joined into the band um, right as Calling All Angels, that next record mm-hmm. came out. And he was there all the way through the ascension of Sugarland. And when Pat started making solo records, I called Brandon and I said, Man, we're playing stadiums. Will you come? I think we can afford a keyboard player. And uh, he plays every record I've ever made since I was <laughs> 13. There's not been a record he hasn't been on that I've either produced or was an artist. I mean, two kids that, because you played by ear, you you know, you would hear things and play things and to get that once is a lottery win with a kid who can, <laughs> but to get that twice with one, the work ethic, but two, the natural ability and it's always a combination. If you just have even a whole lot of one, it usually doesn't work out. Yeah. You got to have some collective of both and they can be different levels. But you and your brother both. Where? Why? Where did that come from? I, I don't know. That's too, but that's so but it, rare, right? But it, it was part of our 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 raise, Like we were raised. Uh, um, so we both got signed up for the same Japanese experimental program. We were we were kind of guinea pigs at the University but, of Tennessee. You're it's not called, making a joke. I'm not making a joke. <laughs> um, there is a program called the Suzuki Method, which was this. Japanese idea that if children learned music at the time their brains learned language, they would learn it as a language. And at the time, in the early 70s, it was just a theory. Then nobody had proved it, but they were running pilot programs around America. 
And the University of Tennessee Knoxville was one of the pilot programs. And my mother signed me up when I was three. And so I played violin and I was from not Knoxville. I was from the mountains outside of Knoxville. (laughs) So they called them fiddles. But I was playing like Bach and Vivaldi and stuff by ear. And as soon as my brother was three years old, he did the same thing. And within a couple of years, he was like, can I not play violin? Can I play piano? And that happened. So by the time I was in middle school, I was really being made fun of for moving a violin case around because I was being kind of shipped into Knoxville for school. My parents like were trying to get me into a private school. And um, I begged my mother to let me play guitar. Just begged her. And she said, you know, if you can play one season in the youth symphony, I'll let you do it. She knew I couldn't read music. So I, I went the long way. I, I, I took my little Walkman that had just been invented at the time, and I recorded the person next to me on Wednesdays. And I would learn it on Thursday and Friday, and I would perform it on Saturday. By learning, you mean listen to it and then play it back. I'd play it by ear. And that's how I survived, and I got to learn to play guitar, because once I got through that season, she gave me a guitar. And within a year, I had said, Brianna, we need to make a record, and I don't know how to do that. Let's figure it out. Do you believe in the Suzuki method? Oh, yeah. I think it's pretty cool. It's changed a lot. That's mind-blowing to me. And uh, Brandon learned how to read music because they had incorporated it earlier than they did with me. I was so early in the program. Um, And he is uh, an orchestrator now. You know, when I did the musical last year in Atlanta, he was the music director. He's He and I have scored things for Turner Classic Movies. Like, we... We do things. Anytime Sugarland has a string section, like still the same, the end of that has this giant string orchestra in it, and Brandon's scoring all of that. I mean, you got a, you did a musical, you got your solo records, you did Sugarland, you, you got a wedding song on the, <laughs> on the flipping through channels at one in the morning, and it's like Christian Bush singing about a dress on. I mean, that's that's pretty nutty. You got the whole, <laughs> as nutty goes, that that is almost full almond joy. Crazy man! <laughs> I want to talk about your podcast because let's talk about the podcast. Uh, it's called Geeking Out with Christian Bush, and it's about people that geek out about not just music. No, it doesn't have to be. You told me it didn't have to be. It about does, music. and it's the best because in Granger, you're talking to Granger uh-huh. Smith in the first episode about beehives. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, I learned so much from this podcast. I have a friend that has beehives, but when you guys were sitting, you're you're like talking and eating or after. <laughs> but he's talking. Granger Smith is so into beehives. And oh my god! First of all, I was like Granger. I know Granger well. Granger and I. Granger lives in north of Austin. I lived in Austin fourteen years. That we have a. You a, know each other. Yes. Okay. And I was thinking, I did not know you were such a nerd about beehives. Then I thought, I didn't know beehives were so interesting. I had no idea. I had no idea, and that's what I love about this podcast. You know, the when the when you had come to me and said. Christian, I'm interested in what you would be interested in. And I thought about it for a while, and I think I sent you two or three ideas. And um, this has really stood the test of time of this concept that a podcast is good when you have rules, right? Because there are boundaries that you can stay, keep your conversations within. And so the rule for this podcast is I want to talk to you about what you are completely into, what you are geeking out on that has nothing to do with your job. 
So people introduce themselves, they tell me what their job is, and then we stop talking about their job. And they have to know what it is that you're interested in. And I learned so much. You will not believe some of the things people say. I mean, when Granger started talking about bees, I had so many questions. And he had so many answers. He had all the answers. And I was also blown away at how much he knew about freaking beehives. Right? I was just so, huh. But so I was just so on multi levels. I thought, wow, that's weird, Granger. Wow, bees do that. Wow, it's weird, Granger and bees do that. Christian, will you? He, Christian just asked what I was thinking. <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah. I was like, do you, I'm interested if he like. I told him at some point, have you put a GoPro camera at the beginning at the opening of your beehive? Because I want to see the bouncers. You know that the bees that fight the other bees say you can't come in here, and who slips through and who doesn't. And, I mean, it's fascinating to me. And then the middle part of it. Um, I then we kind of take the same idea, but we do something really quick. Like I trade you something like I give, I turn you on to something and then you turn me onto something. And he was talking about, <laughs> it's crazy. Cold water therapy where you dunk yourself into like 50 or 40 degree water for a certain amount of time until all the blood rushes to your core. And then you get out of the water and the blood all rushes back to your you know extremities. And that somehow this, cleanses your body like your bone marrow starts to make more blood (laughs) fresh blood yeah right and i was just kind of looking at him like this is i had no all i could see when i look at you is earl dibbles jr and then like (laughs) granger smith and i just didn't expect naked earl dibbles jr in a pool talking about bees you know like that is cool to me and that is the most interesting part about people. And I love that this podcast is happening because I can't wait for other people to go through this process. Yeah, I went through. My mind was blown. And, and the thing about Granger, too, is he's, he's really ripped. Like You wouldn't know it because you just see Earl. Oh, yeah, man. He, 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 Granger's jacked. He's, and, 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 you know, he, he doesn't seem like a guy that would tear his shirt off, right? But he's totally a guy who I can tell after meeting him and spending time with him you know, a lot of people, when you feel like your life is out of control, you control the one thing you can, your body, your haircut, your whatever. You control one thing that is completely within your control. And it seems like his life has brought him into a place of real joy controlling his body. And that's cool. I really enjoy that guy. He's good. It's a good guy. Dude, just and, a good dude. And I got to tell you, when I was on the record label and they told me they were signing him and I went and researched him, I was like, I think this is a terrible idea. You know, I was really concerned about the message that the Earl Dibbles piece was doing. I was like, I don't think a lot of his fans know that he's kidding. Some of them don't. You Some know? of them still don't. I was like, I think what, I, I don't <laughs> want white supremacists on my label, right. you know, like forget that. I don't think they understand that this is a farce. And, uh, it, it made me very nervous, and so I feel even doubly interested in him being a first guest because I, I believe that um, it, in our time of bouncing through information so quickly that someone would miss what a great guy he is. I think they can, and I think some do, and some don't care. And You look at his accounts, I think Earl Dibbles has a couple million followers, and Granger has a couple hundred thousand. You know what? I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to provide a rabbit hole for people to go dive into to find out more. Uh, geeking out with Christian Bush. I think it's fantastic. I just I feel like we could sit here for three hours and just <laughs> talk. And then we have. And uh, I'll tell you, just because I got so close to the Lindsay Project, 
that I would hear the songs early and then I would hear them when they were done. Yeah. What what you and Lindsay did with this song here? You make me feel champagne. Like oh. the band. You know what's cool about this? So the backbeat is me playing an acoustic guitar with my hand without a chord. So like muted, a muted. There's no snare drum until. So the rhythm is you holding a muted chord. Yeah. I think music is beautiful when it's really simple. Here I did it twice right there. I made a mistake. We left it. That's funny you can hear that. I mean, you're so... I, I would have never heard that. And, and it happened in the right ear and your left ear. It went... <laughs> yeah. Man, hear that. I'll be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. Different level. Uh, I, didn't do the, I didn't do the old Yamaha. No, Suzuki. The motorcycle. Suzuki. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. I, I learned to make records um, by listening in headphones. So... It's a good rule that if you see my name on an album, either as an artist or as a producer or a writer even, but mostly as an artist or producer, you should take the minute to put on the big headphones, the big Princess Leia ones, and listen, because I left you secrets. Little Easter eggs? Yeah. Don't be afraid and so, depending when you hear this, and people listen to podcasts for years after, but as we do this, Sugarland's about to go out on the big tour. Yes. And... I'll be coming. <laughs> for yes, sure, please. I'll be coming. Sugarland, and you have Frankie Ballard and Claire Bowen out, and you have Lindsay L, and you have and Brandy, Clark. Brandy Clark, who is one of my absolute favorites. I love Brandy. Also, Lindsay's all, but for un- spoken reasons again, but Brandy Clark. I know, man. That She is good people. I Brandy's great, man. I'm excited about our openers. You know, Little Big Town was our openers for about three years. We just never gave up on them. I just kept thinking, these guys are so good. And it's just not falling. The cards aren't falling for them. And they just put their head down and they just kept working and kept working. So I love the idea that people can come to a Sugarland show and discover music they've never thought that they would be madly in love with. And if you can trust us for that, much like people trust you on your radio show for music, when you turn people on to something, I think it's the I think it's a trust that you earn and you gotta do everything you can to keep it. Oh, look at you. Sugarland's back, you got a <laughs> secret album. A secret album. The, Troubadour's gonna go in Sarasota the tru- this year. Troubadour in the, the summer. musical. It's it's being staged in Florida. You got a <laughs> podcast. Yes. You got uh you got a lot. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're writing. So you have a song on the radio oh, yeah, that you yeah, wrote yeah, yeah, that wrote. you didn't even produce? You didn't sing it? You just wrote it? I mean, this has been a, a dry number of years. You're like Jennifer Lopez, the, man. The, the desert's been a long desert. It's great to see water. I Thank you I for coming beaches. over to the house. I really appreciate you coming over. You know I'm a huge fan. I'm a, I'm a big fan of yours. Man. man. Christian Bush, episode 100, and it's been a special 100. one, man. Episode 100. Check out Geeking Out with Christian Bush. Go out and see Sugarland on the road. Give him a couple bucks. See him walking down the road. Like I said, the desert's been dry. Give you a couple bucks. 100. Yeah. Episode, episode 100. And we just wrote a new song. Bobby Cast. The Bobby Cast. It's episode 100. Yeah. Hey, the Bobby Cast. Yeah. 100. Yeah. Hear me? Yeah. That's me in the background doing it. 100. Thank you, Christian. Appreciate you, my friend. Appreciate you. All right. Well, thank you very much. See you next time, everybody.